All right, so we're continuing on with our series called Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel Series. For those of you who are new, this will seem like a long series, but this is actually a relatively short one for me. Uh, Today, we are in the 23rd lesson, the 23rd week on this. And uh, we are looking at, if you look at Roman numeral one on your outline, um, we are now at Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And uh, we're looking at an introduction to Christology and We've already looked at how Christ is the fulfillment of everything about Israel, every single aspect and respect. He's the only bridge, solution, atonement, et cetera. So on our first 20 messages, we did elements zero through four. We, in element zero, we looked at why uh, we need to be trained to do evangelism, why there's a difference between those who are pre-evangelized and those who are not pre-evangelized, and we need to understand that's uh, you know why I, I I favor what I call pole fishing, a relational one-on-one uh, uh, disciple-making evangelism, because uh, frankly I uh, I question uh, when it's just some sort of a one-time emotional appeal and with the sinner's prayer and little understanding that uh, I've questioned exactly what happened. I myself went forward at a Billy Graham crusade in 1972. And I was partly being tugged on by the Holy Spirit, uh, which was an interesting phenomenon since I was agnostic at the time. And uh, on the other hand, I was still living at home. I was only like 14, but I was heavy into drugs and this and that. My parents had become Christians about two years before that, or no, about five years before that. And I wasn't too happy about there being Jesus freaks and all that. So I figured if I go forward, I can get my dad off my back for a while. So needless to say, not a whole lot took for a long time. I actually did start reading the Bible for a few weeks, but that didn't last very long. So uh, then I went much deeper into the world and to sin and so forth, as fish are often do when they're on the hook and they see the boat coming. So uh, pre-evangelism, huge, huge concept, diagnostic tools to understand where people are really at, tailoring the presentation to... Uh, to who they are. And, and really the most important concept that, that uh, we covered there is we, we really have got to move from a decision-making model of evangelism in this culture into a disciple-making model of evangelism. It's highly questionable uh, from a soteriological perspective whether someone who's received Christ and posts Christian things on Facebook and this sort of thing, but they have no goal to grow up and become Christ-like. They have no goal to obey Christ. They have no goal to become a fisher of men. They have no goal to to actually conform their life to being a follower of Christ. Whether or not there's actually a true conversion there is quite biblically questionable. Uh, certainly don't want to go into that here. So Roman numeral three, we uh, started on this element five, bridging the gra- gap. And in, in, uh, in Matthew 16, this is uh, a verse I often start any, when I basically share the gospel with somebody, I never am trying to get them to make a decision in the first few times we meet. I'm always trying to get them uh, drawn by God enough, you know, cooperating with the Holy Spirit that he, no one can come unless the Father draws them. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I'm looking for enough drawing and enough conviction uh, to basically say, would you be open-minded enough to actually read the Bible and study it and do some Bible studies 
on the basics of the of the kingdom gospel. And uh, in those uh, studies, I'm really looking for a whole process to happen uh, that would lead to a to a more biblically complete conversion. So that uh, is is some of what you'll know by the end of the probably 60 or so messages that we'll, uh, we'll end up with by the end of this series. So um, in Matthew 16, I always start with this. Jesus basically says, who do people say that I am? And as we're going to talk about a little bit today, all kinds of people and all kinds of religions have ideas about who Jesus is. Um, it's almost inescapable because there's just too much historical evidence for for not only for the existence of Christ, but for the fact that Christ changed the world more than any uh, possible second-running individual. Now, we live in a time of uh, massive not reading, massive not learning how to think logically and critically and so forth. So we have seen, actually, in, in the last decade or so, the emergence of guys like Dan Brown who and the whole questioning of the historical Jesus and, and this kind of thing. But that could only be sold on a really uneducated culture that doesn't know how to think very well, because there's just, it's just, it's just craziness. It's not even, although I have read books in response to Dan Brown from good, wonderful Christian writers and so forth, it's almost not worth, you know, you, you, in Proverbs, it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The whole concept of, you know, the his history channel and the learning channel and he's looking for the historical Jesus is just kind of crazy. Um, if you know anything about how evidence is presented either in history or law, it is one of the, you know, the, 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 uh, the life, death, and even the resurrection of Christ are some of the most well-documented facts in history that cannot really be debated. So, uh the truth of the matter is, is that people know there's a Jesus, and the real question is, who do they say I am? And, uh, you know, the disciples said, some Elijah think you're Elijah, some think you're one of the prophets, and so forth, and then Jesus focuses the question. Um, those of you who've gone through my summer discipleship making training know that there's diagnostic questions, and then there's focusing questions, but who do you say that I am? All of Christian truth rises and falls on who you say Jesus is, period. Uh, you don't, if you don't have the right biblical Jesus in your heart and mind, you don't, you're, you don't have Christianity. And it's uh, as clear and simple as that. So uh, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, we'll look at in a minute. Last couple weeks, we, uh, we kind of jumped into this Christology thing, kind of like jumping into a book in the middle uh, just because uh, looking at the Lagos in, in the Gospel of John and all the I am sayings, and depending on how you count them, uh, there's somewhere between 20 and 40 I am sayings in the Gospel of John. You know, that depends on him. Since he says, I am the door twice, and I'm the vine twice, and he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. At other places, he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Is, he, is life one saying, two sayings? But there's somewhere, there's at least 20-some. You hear a lot of people today say there's seven I am sayings in the Gospel of John. I don't know where that idea came from. I didn't trace it down historically. But there are far more I am sayings, especially if you look at the Greek word, aiming, I am. 
So we looked at those for a couple weeks. Can't review much there because way behind schedule already. So flip your page over and we'll get into today's stuff. Uh, today, we're going to look at the crucial characteristics of Christ. In other words, what are eight of the most irreducible aspects when you study what's called the attributes of God and when you study the attributes of Christ, uh, specifically, what uh, do you have to have to be within, if you were to draw a circle, and that circle had some of the great creedal statements of the Christian faith, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the, the symbol of Chalcedon, the, the Athanasian Creed, and you were to say, basically, outside that circle is, is false religions, inside the circle is true Orthodox Christianity, and you were to say, where are those boundaries? These eight things are absolutely essential. You lose any of these, and you don't have Christianity. You may have pseudo-Christianity, as we're going to talk about for a minute, but you don't have Christianity. So that's very important to understand. You need, as a Christian, uh, even the youngest, most basic of Christians can know enough Scripture to defend these eight concepts about Christ. Without these, you don't have Christianity. So that uh, is, is under Roman numeral 5a. The first one is the deity of Christ, that Christ is God. That's why we jumped in right away with the I am saints. Jesus is clearly using uh, John's borrowing of the Lagos principle, in which he got the idea from Jesus and saying, I am the ultimate door of doors. I'm the creator of all doors. I'm the source of all life. I'm the shepherd of all shepherds. There could be no concept of shepherding except for the great and eternal shepherd of uh, the sheep, so and so forth. So uh, that's why we looked in, you know, jumped in right there, because um, some of the great battles of false religions uh, have always been to deny the deity of Christ. This was true in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century. For a long time, uh, after the, the challenges that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, we're going to look at this in some historical perspective. Once the church had responded to the challenges of faith that God's sovereignty allowed to, to test Christology, and the, the four foundational creeds of the Christian faith had come forth in the canon of the 27 books of the New Testament had been, had been officially recognized and so forth, there were actually very few uh, challenges to biblical Christology until modern times. Uh, when modern churches began in the 19th century to uh, to not ta uh, teach uh, to not recite creeds in their worship so that they could be more open to the flow of the Spirit and uh, to not teach on the creeds and so forth, uh, shortly after that you saw you see the birth of all kinds of modern cults. We'll talk more about that as we go today. So uh, you know we're going to look at. Over the next few weeks, you know, what does eternally begotten mean? What does uh, uh, not created mean or not made? One substance with the Father, co-equal with the Father, one in being and concepts like that. It's important that you see that, you know, what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one. So we're going to look at the humanity of Christ. Um, now, uh you know, his human nature, that he became flesh or material, the word became flesh, that is, he, that, was, that was a crazy doctrine to the ancient world because 
uh, both Eastern and Greco-Roman religions looked at the world, the physical world, as something corrupt and evil. So no holy God would enter that world. That, uh, that, was, that, that doctrine was abhorrent to the ancient world, that God actually entered human life and took on a human body and sweated and walked and got hungry and partied with the, uh, in moderation, of course, with the, you know, the sinners and, and, you know, walked long distances and probably skipped stones with the disciples across the Jordan River, although that's extra biblical uh, <laughs> speculation. But uh, he was a human being in every respect. Re- he was actually really temptable. As we're going to look at, when we look at his sinless life, we're going to look at the fact that he is without sin. That sin and sins are in the scriptures are something different. Be careful when you're reading your New Testament to see if the Greek word hamartia there is plural or single, singular. Is it sin or sins? Because sin is the sin nature that all of us have inherited from Adam and Eve and causes us to run from God, to, to, to not seek for God, to uh, hide behind religion or rebellion or various kinds of escape things. We run, seek to escape responsibility and growing up. We seek to escape discipline. We seek to escape jobs. You know, that's why I, when I was a young Christian, I read every book in the Bible except for Job because I thought it said job. And uh, <laughs> uh, so... We, our sin nature is, uh, is, is in all of us, but it was not in Christ. He was created like unto Adam and Eve with the real possibility of being tempted, but not with a sin nature. And his temptations were real, yet he was without sins. That is, he never committed. And sins are the individual sins of which we uh, do maybe a, just a few hundred that we know about each day. Uh, and probably several, you know, maybe a thousand uh, hidden sins that we don't really even know that we're sinning in our attitudes or motivations or what have you. Uh, we're going to look at how Christ uh, was attested to both by the prophets of the Old Testament. It's become fashionable today to you see tracts and booklets and things that'll say that Jesus uh, fulfilled something like three hundred and some. Uh, prophecies about himself and so forth, when in fact, uh, that's because of some modern lenses we're looking at scripture with. The truth is he fulfilled more than 3,000 prophetic uh, things in the scripture about him. Every page of the Old Testament has clues to Christ that that Christ alone is the only person in history that could have and did fulfill. And that's actually one in the same with uh, Christ's unique attesting miracles. God, by the Holy Spirit, did miracles through Moses, Elijah, the prophets, the apostles. There's been miracles through the centuries, tens of thousands of documented Christian miracles all through the centuries, healings, casting out of demons, prophecy, speaking in tongues. All these things have continued uh, with tens of thousands of historical documentation throughout the scripture. But Jesus did some things that no one else had ever done. Uh, and most importantly, is he opened the eyes of those who were born blind because God is giving us a clue. He's like, eh, eh, eh. 
only Jesus can open the eyes of those who are born blind, which is you and me. Uh, you know, even Elijah rose the widow's son from the dead. Um, but Jesus was the first to open the eyes of people born blind. His creating of uh, the wine at the wedding of Cana, anybody who knows anything about viticulture and making wine, the essence of making good wine is you've got to start with meticulously grown good grapes, good quality vines, and great soil with the right sun and water, and they have to be picked at exactly the right time, and then they have to be uh, smashed in the right way, and the, uh, the juice extracted, and then they have to be aged. You add yeast and uh, uh, so forth, and they, the natural sugars have to ferment the yeast, and they have, to be, they have to be aged in the right kind of barrels. If you want a certain taste, you use oak barrels. And, and this has to take months, years, years, years at controlled temperatures. You get a wine above around 50 or 69 degrees, you might as well sell it for the winos as Mad Dog or some cheap stuff that uh, only alcoholics would drink or something. It's, it's, it's become vinegar syrupy stuff. Uh, so Jesus creates the best wine at the wedding that anyone had ever tasted because he's demonstrating that he creates things with age the second they're created. Adam was created a mature man. The universe was created with many things in it billions of years old the second they were created. And only Jesus can do that. Because he, only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the, the Trinity, are the creators. So we're going to look at uh, his passion, his suffer, suffering, substitutionary death. We're going to look at the resurrection. Uh, without that, there's nothing. Ascension coronation and glorification. Uh, some people know a little bit about the ascension today. Very few people understand the doctrine of uh, coronation or glorification. Very important because that leads to the idea that Jesus is presently reigning. Uh, the kingdom is here. It is now, and it's uh, much more in our midst than, uh, than we think. And uh, if you look out th through church history, all Christians have always known that there's a second coming, so there's an aspect in which the kingdom is not fully here yet, but because of the first coming, there's an aspect where the kingdom is here yet, and those Christians who have had more faith to understand the present realities of the kingdom have always expanded the gospel and, and Christianized the culture, and those Christians who have put more of, of uh, the kingdom coming only after the second coming of Christ and have had little hope for, for overcoming darkness and changing culture and so forth in this time, have always surrendered the culture, uh, and that, that's gone on in dozens and dozens of, of, of sub-civilizations and time periods throughout uh, the church's history. So we'll look at that uh, as, a, as a crucial. Now, without any of those, if, we, if you surrender any of those, you have another religion. And uh, as Jesus put it, you're still in your sins. So now, next thing I want to just touch on here is the crucial role of Christology. Um, we are going to look at this in a lot of ways. I jumped right into uh, uh, word pictures when I did the I am sayings uh, because the Bible teaches in lots of ways 
But over the next few weeks, we're going to look at primarily what's called the didactic method of teaching, of which the New Testament and the Old are full of lots of examples. Hopefully by the end of today, I'll have enough time left over to define that. If not, we'll segue that into the introduction next week. So um, we're going to look at why our understanding of the identity of Jesus matters. So we just need to visit our introductory scriptures again. Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? Now, in a passage that can be any, any person who really is willing to study the Greek and, and understand uh, the Old Testament and the ramifications of there would have to admit that uh, when, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Then he says, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. He's proclaiming Jesus' Messiahship and his deity in that. He's proclaiming exactly what he proclaimed in his sermon in Acts 2. Uh, there were two concepts in the, in the Jewish mind of the day of Jesus. One was Emmanuel, God with us, is coming, Yahweh in our midst. The other is that Mashiach, or in Greek, Christos, the Messiah, the Christ, is coming and Peter it basically says, you're those two things. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God in human flesh. You are the Messiah. You're right in our midst. That's the whole point of his Acts 2 sermon. He ends the sermon by saying, so you see, God has made, but the Greek means has made it manifest, has made it clear that, that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. He's both Yahweh the son of the living God, God in our midst, and he's Mashiach, Christos, that we've been waiting for, and we killed him. That's why they re it says when they heard this, they're cut to the quick. And, they're, and they're, they say, what must we do? That's When someone gets to that point, that's when they're ready to actually become a, a Christian. We have all kinds of people in our culture today that have prayed a sinner's prayer, that have been water baptized, that have even joined a church, and have even had things prophesied over them and been told that they're going to be this or that in the Lord, but there's not been a, they're not born again. There's not been a conversion to Christ. They're yet still in their sins. They haven't understood the gospel, and they haven't had a new creation come into them where their life is now consumed by knowing God, by being like him, by doing his will, by submitting. Instead of having my opinion about everything, I submit to the scriptures on everything. That's what it means to become a Christian, to become a lover of God, and to no longer, the serpent said to, to Eve, you shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself what is good and evil. When people are still saying, well, you know, I did this sin and it worked out pretty good, <laughs> they're, they're not yet a Christian. They're, in America, there's millions and millions, perhaps the majority of Bible-believing Christians are in that boat, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. And that's not going to uh, ultimately be very loving to anyone. That's why there's an offense in the gospel. The gospel is ultimately very offensive. The gospel says, you're lost, you're blind, you're improperly motivated, you're a rebel, you're doing your own thing, you don't know what you're talking about, and, uh, and God loves you and he came to rescue you. <laughs> that's why ultimately it usually works out better, best if you get the opportunity to build a friendship for a while and so forth and kind of can explain these things in somewhat of a re reasonable way. Sometimes it doesn't always work out like that. But, um, you know, you need to be rescued. 
and you don't have the least bit of ability to self-help rescue yourself. You don't need a psychologist. You don't need a little reforming. You need recreated. So, um, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6 says something uh, very narrow-minded. By the way, a lot of the I am sayings, remember, are very narrow-minded. Christianity is very narrow-minded. In fact, Jesus said, seek to enter by the narrow door, right? The narrow gate or door and walk by the narrow path. And that's not trying harder. That means he's the only door. There is no other, there's no broad door that you can go through with Buddha and, and all sorts of roads lead to nirvana. Um, this, Paul says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. He's right there. Savior is a term uh, in the New Testament that applies to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there's one God, not a pantheon of gods. And there's one mediator or bridge or solution uh, also between God and man, the man, there's the, the human nature of Christ, the, that word became flesh, G, Christ Jesus, who gave himself uh, because we were bankrupt, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Now, um, so um, let's, keep, let's continue on. 1 John chapter 5, 12, I would really encourage you, if you get a chance, read in, in, in the next few weeks while we're doing this, read Colossians a few times and read 1 John. Colossians and 1 John, all the books of the New Testament were written by at least 68 AD. You'll hear a lot of stuff even in fundamentalist conservative Bible colleges that say some of the th books of the Bible were written uh, as late as 90 AD and stuff. And, and frankly, that just doesn't bear up to historical scrutiny. Uh, but before the destruction of Jerusalem, the New Testament books were written. And uh, frankly, Peter and Paul both died in Nero's persecution no later than 68 AD. So they weren't writing any more books. Uh, Mark wrote, John, Mark was asked by Peter to write his version of the gospel. Uh, and Mark is Peter's gospel written in somewhere between 64 and 66 AD. So, um, Colossians and 1 John being two of the books written toward the end of the New Testament writing area, basically, uh, by this time, Gnostic ideas that, that emerged into full-fledged Gnosticism later in the century and throughout the 2nd and 3rd century and have revisited us. Many, many, many books are starting to come forth, thankfully, on how Gnostic modern Bible-believing Christianity is and so forth, uh, Gnosticism was, was an idea that uh, started to sweep the church, and Colossians and 1 John are written to counteract that idea. 1 John is all about how to measure your reality. The one who says this but thinks this is actually wrong. They're deceived. They're blind. They, they think they're in this place, but you're really in this place. 1 John will help you find where you really are. So, uh, and one of the primary issues of 1 John in terms of where you really are is who is Jesus? 
So in 1 John 5, 12, he says, he who has the son has the life. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is not going to heaven. Going to heaven is a byproduct of eternal life. Eternal life is knowing the Father by both in, t- in both New Testament ways, that is, you know him intellectually, scripturally, theologically, and you know him experientially in your, in your spirit in concrete, powerful, tangible ways that change your heart in real ways. That's biblical knowing. And uh, if anybody's ever gone through my Search the Scripture series, we looked at uh, about 14 words, uh, Greek words in the New Testament about knowledge and uh, we do that one, did that one the last couple of years at Wright State. Um, and those, those words all break down into two kinds of knowledge. No, knowing him scripturally, theologically, cognitively, rationally, intellectually, and knowing him experientially in your spirit and in, in, in a new heart, in a new creation, new, new affections. Part of the way you can know you're really converted is you start loving in a passionate way, be, uh, embracing your crosses every day. Then you really want to grow up in the Lord and become like Jesus in every way. And then you become passionate about it. And you can't produce that in yourself. You have to cry out, God, save me. <laughs> Change me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Restore the joy of my salvation. Then I can teach sinners thy ways. Then I can, sinners will be converted to thee. Uh, we... You know, God has to make you a new being because you can't lead anyone to Christ until you go deeper in Christ yourself. Because every seed brings forth its own kind. You will reproduce who you are. You can't have, everyone wants to have a ministry without submitting to the process of embracing the crosses and building the character and building the knowledge and building the wisdom to actually have some life come out. So we go, and we get like almost a drip, maybe a dampness. There's the dampness of life, almost not quite flowing out from me, you know. And uh, uh, unfortunately, we have become anemic. All right, so he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. Next week, we're going to look at, fir- or no, not week, next week, I think in two or three weeks, we're going to look at First Corinthians. 11:19 that actually says there must also be heresies among you in in order that the way of the truth may become manifest. God ordained a process of challenges to the Christian faith that started in New Testament times and con- and continued through the 5th century and the church was able to clarify Christology from the New Testament documents because because of all those heresies. Uh Romans 1 1 through 5. Oh boy. I started 10 or 12 minutes late. I'm going to probably have to go. We, we need to look at this scripture. When we look at, look, look at how many of the eight things above are in these scriptures we're reading here. Romans 1, 1 through 5, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, uh, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The Old Testament promises the gospel thousands of ways in time. Concerning his son, it's all about his son. It doesn't concern anything that's not filtered through the foundation of his son. With uh, his son, with where was it? 
concerning his son who was born of uh, of a dis- where who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. He became a human being, who was declared the Son of God with, by, with power by the resurrection from the dead. We're going to look at how the resurrection uh, is one of the great attesting signs in history and so forth. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ, not our bub, not, not our butler, and all those Christians, he's my butler. We've made him, he's my butler. I, he does what I need him to for myself. Uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for you to have your better life now. Oh, wait, my you probably have a different translation. Jeez, it's all for his glory. It's for his namesake. If anybody is trying to tell you that it's all about you, then, you know, they're a used car salesman. And they will have many books selling in Christian bookstores. And they will be rich and live in big houses. And they won't have carpet with holes in it. But, but they won't exactly be loving you, nor, more importantly, loving God. First John 4 and 5 have a string of Wonderful things that say, by this you know, again, biblical knowledge is not hoping. Biblical belief is not hoping. We've turned belief in the in modern times, that's the reason I don't even use the word anymore. I use trust, following, obeying. We've turned belief into an intellectual ascent of the doctrines of Christianity, but real belief is believing enough to bank your whole lifestyle on it. Believing enough to follow, believing enough to pick up your cross, believing enough to become a fisher of men, believing enough to be part of a, of a body of Christians walking in accountability, believing enough to become a first-rate scholar of Scripture. That's what it means to believe in, in biblical words. You know, Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is not hope. It's, faith is evidence. It's knowledge. It's, it's an epistemology. It's a way of knowing for sure. It's the evidence of things hoped for, and it's the substance. It's the reality of things not seen. Biblical faith is not that you're taking some leap of faith. It's when God has revealed himself to you in such a way that you can say with the apostles, whoever has believed him has set his seal that God is true. You know that you know that you know and the only way you know is because he's revealed himself in Christ by his Holy Spirit through the scriptures and through the historical teachings of the church. And you know that you know that you know when he reveals himself in such a way. I always say, if I say I have a friend named John Gray, and you say, no, you don't, the, and the burden of proof on you would be an astronomical. You'd have to be God to disprove me. Because you'd have to know every person alive in the universe to be able to prove I don't know John Gray. All I'd have to do is introduce you to John Gray. Here's John Gray. If you're a real skeptic, I might have to show his driver's license or birth certificate or something or get a few other people to testify. We have seen and we know and we've handled. This is John Gray. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and the John Gray was manifested and lived among us. And, you know, God reveals himself in such a way that we know that we know. Uh, I, so read first John 
in the next week or two. First Corinthians 15, I delivered as a first importance what I also received. He received it because the New Testament churches were speaking these very words at every Lord's Day service together orally as a creed. Even Lee Strobel and people like that point this, this particular verse out as a creedal statement. We're going to look at that in a few weeks and more. He was raised according to the scriptures. Now, some key issues. I'm speeding along here. Why, why does this matter? Uh, first of all, we looked at, in terms of why it matters, we looked at the crucial role of, of Christology from scriptural point of view. From a practical point of view, all pseudo-cults, all pseudo-Christian cults, pseudo meaning false or seeming like they're, uh, that they're Christian but not actually being Christian, and all false religions, uh, you don't need to know actually a ton about false cults and false religions. You have to look at their Christology. I'm all for reading books about false religions and the kingdom of the cults and all kind of stuff like that. But the first and foremost issue is whoever has the son has the life. And whoever doesn't have the son does not have the life. Unless you believe that I am, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. And when you lift up the son of God, then you will know that I am. The resurrection is one of the great attestations to the fact that he was right when he said, I am 20 to 40 times. Uh, now, some pseudo-Christian cults of ancient times we're going to look at more. I'm going to be starting a church history class this summer, run very similar to our theology class, shameless plug. And um, uh, so uh, those of you who've been asking for that, several, uh, will finally be happy um, for a while. Uh, until we then until you want another class after you finish that one. Uh, when we're going to try to roll out a series of classes like Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, uh, introduction to, to uh, apologetics, things like that. So um, ancient cults that include Gnosticism, Modalism, Ebionites, Marcion, Docetism, Arianism, Manichaeism. I'm going to be talking about those in a few weeks. Uh, mo the modern cults that, uh, again, emerged in the 19th century, Pretty much there. Now, there were some false cults through the century uh, in, within the Christian geographical areas called Christendom, but not that many, because once the creeds had been fully formed in the canon of Scripture, it, uh, it wiped out the cults. Because here's what you, you need to know about creeds. All churches, every church, everywhere, there was no church up until the 19th century that didn't recite either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed every Lord's Day together as a group, not saying those is a completely modern idea. And it happens to exactly coincide with when the cults started to re to appear, what we call the modern pseudo-Christian cults, that are actually the same ideas as the ancient pseudo-Christian cults with new titles. Okay? Because if you grow up saying the creeds, you will not become a Christian necessarily. But what will happen is when God starts drawing you and gets knocking at your door, when you've recited 6,000 times that I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all the things we're going to say, Jesus Christ is only begotten Son, born, you know, et cetera. When you've said all the Christological and Trinitarian doctrines and the creation doctrines and the resurrection doctrines and the doctrine of the church and so forth, 
When you start getting into it and when you're lost and God starts looking for you and knocking on your door and he already always knew where you were at, you start realizing he's looking for you and uh, he starts drawing you to the kingdom. If you haven't grown up in that tradition, whichever crazy TV religion or cult or whatever gets to you first is where you're going to end up. That's why, you know, if you study like TV Christianity, it's craziness. It's, I mean, it's, it's ridiculously shallow, misguided. Uh, uh, it's, and sometimes it borders on being an abomination, but it's ridiculous. But you, if you've grown up in a creedal uh, situation where you recite them, you won't end up a Jehovah's Witness. You'll find your way to a biblically-centered Orthodox Christian church, and you won't end up being part of the growing millions and millions and millions of the so-called born-again unchurched people who uh, attend the church once in a while, but they're really not part of a community of Christians where they give, take, serve, get, you know, are formed, discipled, accountable, praying together, working together, striving together for the, for the gospel, that's what it means to, to, to embrace Christ. You can't embrace Christ. You can't say you know Christ if you're not intricately interwoven with his people because he lives among his people. So false and post-first uh, Christ event religions. What I mean is religions that developed after the first coming of Christ that include like Islam, Baha'i, Deism, which was the faith of Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and so forth. Materialism, humanism, which is the modern American faith. Moralism, which is kind of the modern Bible-believing faith. Uh, Freemasons, Rosicrucians, statists of all versions, people who think that we can actually solve problems by laws and government and state and right, voting for the right people. And uh, more government, that's what we need to save us. Because whoever saves you will become your Lord. Next time you want more taxes and more government and more programs, Whoever you're looking to bail you out economically or whatever is, is controlling you. They are your Lord. Scientology, all these kinds of false religions of modern times all get down to, uh, to they, have, they have a false Jesus. Again, it, it took modern times with the, the, the decline in reading that's been, that's been plummeting for the 60 years and nobody... I, I actually interview my Sinclair classes all the time on various issues just to find out like where our society's at. And I say, how many of you have ever taken a class in logic or logical thinking? I've had one homeschooled girl once that took that. Then I said, uh, I say, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I say a class in logic or logical thinking? I've had one homeschool girl once that knew what I was talking about, knew what the question meant. And I said, now, do you understand that logic and logical thinking is an academic discipline? The vast majority of my students don't even know what I mean by an academic discipline. Now, I understand that Sinclair is not Cedarville or, or University of Dayton or something, but, um, uh, you know, I don't think I would do actually that much better at freshman classes at Wright State, sadly. Um, so um, so with, you know, that's problematic. Um, 
I guess what I'm going to do is point C, we're going to introduce what a didactic approach to understanding Scripture is. It's a vital hermeneutic. We've done a lot of teaching in the last few years here about all the other missing hermeneutics like word pictures, literary uh, devices, um, prophetic literature, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But we want to reiterate that the plain didactic explanations of Scripture are, are crucial, critical, crucial, vital. We can't live without them. So next week, we're going to look at the deity of Christ, and perhaps we'll get into the humanity of Christ if we get that far uh, from a didactic perspective, and we'll define what that means. Amen.